Well, this morning we consider the first of our series of a, you could say, an Advent, ser- an Advent series of sermons or sermons leading up to Christmas, um, focusing on the stories of Abraham. Uh, why Abraham? Well, God was long at work, way back from the beginning, working and working towards our salvation, which would ultimately come in Christ, who was born on Christmas Day. So um, today we're going to focus on Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. And we're going to read the entire chapter together. Genesis 12, 1 through 20. After Babel, and you could say the Lord makes a new beginning, working out his promise of salvation with the call of Abram. Begin reading at verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make a great nation out of you. I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he had departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. And the, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were with them, or were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still further south. Notice how Abram lived Sunday to Sunday from altar to altar, right? Sunday frames everything in our life. In this, in Abram's day, the worship of the Lord uh, you could say alter or shape everything in his life, his business deals, his work, and so on, his family life. But this is our text, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her, and commended her or praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he treated Abram well for her sake. 
He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh, his house, with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that this was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. What a dramatic rescue story of God. It's really God is the center here, right? Not Abraham or Pharaoh or anybody else. And really, that's what Christmas is all about. God is the center of our deliverance. So that's our focus this morning, verses 10 through 20 of, of Genesis chapter 12. So yeah, really, why focus on Abram leading up to Christmas? Well, what, what, what does Abram have to do with Christmas? Well, everything, if we understand the Old Testament properly, right? This goes back 2,000 years before the, uh, the Virgin Mary. 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. Why? This is because we see in Abraham how God was keeping his promise of Christmas. Christmas is at stake again and again and again all throughout the Old Testament. Is it going to happen? Is it going to occur? Is Christ actually going to be born? And this is the drama in human history, right? This is the center. You could say this is the central work of God in human history as he's working out his plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. God gave a promise. Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. He makes a new beginning with Abram, with his people. He makes a promise. There will be seed. There will be children. Ultimately, of course, Christ himself coming from that line of, this, uh, line of promise. And you will have an inheritance, right? The inheritance, which is the land, which is, of course, a picture of the eternal life, the inheritance, a place of the land of the living, right? So there's so much here. This doesn't refer to Israel today. Please don't ever, ever think of it that way. It refers to so much, so much more grandeur, so much bigger, right? The eternal life to come, the inheritance of new heavens and a new earth. Those two promises were given to Abram already in seed form. And it's going to be attacked by Satan from side to side. And he's going to try to undo it in every way possible. Salvation from sin is through Abraham's seed, through his descendants, as we read in Galatians 3.16, and ultimately in Jesus. You know, the inheritance of eternal life, the new creation, the garden, is pictured here in the promise of the land. And yes, Abram too needs salvation from sin, just like you and me. So from Genesis 12, 10 through 20, we see in Abraham a God who is faithful to his promise. See a God, that's our aim this morning, see a God who is working out his plan to crush the head of Satan and overturn evil. And he's going to do that through Jesus. See a God who's stronger than death, who's stronger than the kings of the earth. See a God in Abraham 
a God who is working out your salvation in trying times. Sometimes in trying times, we might have the temptation to give up. But this is a God who is working out your salvation. Even in Abraham, who jeopardizes God's promise by his own sinful behavior. Of course, Abraham is confronted by it. But who's sovereign here? The Lord. He's going to work out his promises. And we see two things here. We see Abraham's failure, first of all, his moral failure. And second of all, we see God's faithfulness. God is really the center here. This is, you could say, a a pre-Christmas story in a lot of ways. Abraham, like a new Adam, is called to live his life with God. Right? There's the land, a picture of the garden that Adam once lived in, promised him. And Sarah is like a new Eve, the mother of all living. Of course, the living, which are ultimately found in Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. By God's grace, it's only by God's grace that Abram is able to leave, forsake all that he was connected with in his former life, his old life, and to follow the call of God to trust and to obey him. You know, he expresses his faith in the Lord by living from altar to altar. That's where faith is ultimately expressed from Sunday to Sunday, from worship service to worship service, because that shows our life is in Christ and that we are dependent in our day-to-day lives. Abram, that was God's grace at work in his life, that he was always connected with the Lord from worship service to worship service. But they also face a lot of challenges. Just because he's faithful doesn't mean that there aren't any challenges in life. As a matter of fact, the Bible says those whom God loves, he chastens, he disciplines. And we see that here too. They face many, many tests of faith. That's what a test is for the Christian, right? It's a test of faith. Will you put God first or will you put yourself first? And that's the battle that Abram's facing. We're going to see how he fails. He puts himself first. But that's the battle. Will they trust the Lord? Think about it. He's promised descendants. Who's barren? His wife. Look at chapter 11, a little bit later in the chapter. She has no child. She can't even have children. So that's one problem. Abram's already, what, 75 years old? That's quite old. And we know from Genesis chapter 17 that Sarah was 10 years younger than Abram. So that makes her what age? 65. So she's already quite old. So age is not on their side either. And now there's another snag relating to the promised land, right? The inheritance. There's a famine. What? A famine, yes. A severe famine, verse 10. No rain. The grass is shriveling. The crops are failing. Abram's flocks and herds are getting sick from getting no food, no water. You notice what verse 10 says? The famine was severe. You think about it. All it takes for us to 
get really sick and start suffering is not to have any food in the grocery stores anymore. That's all it takes. You know, you see the sovereign providence of God and how he brought a famine upon the land that God was going to give to Abraham. Well, is this where God led Abraham to those kinds of circumstances? Wait a minute. I thought it was your child, Lord. Why are you allowing these things to happen in my life? Should he continue to trust the Lord? Or should he turn back? Should he obey God's word? Or should he just go back to his home from his former life and worship his former gods? Would God really take care of him? Well, what should he do? What would you do if you were in his place? Where would you go? Verse 20, 10 says that Abram went down where? He went down to Egypt to dwell there. When you think Egypt, think exile, right? He was driven into exile because of the famine. Now, he came to dwell there, but that word dwell, it doesn't, in English, doesn't give full justice to the meaning of that word because dwell here means not permanently, but the sense here is that Abram intended just to go there for a time. So he hasn't abandoned the promises of God. He's still trusting in the Lord. He, he, he's got, he plans on going back to the land that God had called him to. But do you know what his problem is? He gets closer and closer to Egypt and his heart starts beating really fast and rapid. He gets very nervous. He knows and hears things about the Egyptians. They like to take other women from other men. And especially the Pharaoh, he had a huge harem, many, 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 many wives. And as he's getting close to the border of Egypt, Abram gets worried. He gets afraid. He's afraid. Why? Because his wife is so beautiful. 65 years old. So beautiful. He's thinking, you know, because she's so beautiful, they're going to take her from me and I'm going to get killed. They're going to kill me. So before he crosses the border, before he gets checked over by the Egyptians at the border, he schemes, right? Scheming is always necessarily not, not, a, not a good word, right? It's a, it, there's, a, there's plot, there's sinful plots involved in that. Scheming, schemers, right? He schemes with Sarai, his wife, and he whispers in her ear, and now he's thinking about himself only. Understand that. He's not ultimately thinking about Sarah, as we're going to see in a moment. Verse 12, he says, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. He's worried about his own life. Ultimately, just about his own life. Not even to protect Sarah, the promise, but just about his own life. Somehow he's convinced that they will spare her life, not kill him. Where did he come to that conclusion? It's all fear-based. The Lord didn't tell him that. He's to trust and obey. He's to trust and obey the Lord. And he should be trusting the promises of God and leaning on those promises. Shouldn't Abram trust the Lord and lead his wife in this way? Wait a minute, where's his leadership of his wife as head of the family? He should be leading her, not causing her to sin and leading her in the way of sin. 
Abram, Abram. Of course, when we look at Abram, we should see ourselves in Abraham too, right? Because God wrote this for our instruction. Abram should be living by faith, not by fear. Courage, not by cowardice. His lack of trust shows by taking matters in his own hands. He's going to figure it all by himself. Oh, he might pray to the Lord, yeah, but it's up to him now to kind of figure out what he's going to do, and he's going to take matters in his own hands. Verse 13, he tells Sarah, his wife, to lie. What kind of example is that of a husband to his wife? He tells her to lie. Please say, he's begging her, please say you are my sister. Why is he telling Sarai to lie? It's for this reason, that it may be well with me. Right? He's just concerned about himself. It may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Well, you might say, well, this is not really a lie. We justify, we justify our lies by saying, well, it's not so bad. Uh, we have good reason that we can tell, tell a little bit, bit of a white lie. I mean, Sarah, after all, was Abraham's half-sister, right? According to Genesis 20, verse 12, they had the same father, Terah, but they had different mothers. What Abram wanted her to say was partially true, but sometimes that makes a lie even worse, doesn't it? But this was only half a truth, and by this he was giving a false impression, a pretense to the Egyptians, to the enemy. Yes, a half-sister, but she was also his wife, and what Sarah and what Sarah was asked to say was intended to give the impression that she was not Abraham's wife. That's a lie, an outright lie. The fact that they were married was deliberately hidden. Abraham's motive? To save himself. That's worse yet. He was just thinking of himself. He wanted to save his own life. He's not protecting his wife. This is the sad part. He's not protecting her. And every husband is called to protect his wife and lead his wife in the right way. By saying this, by saying that she's not his wife, leaves it open for any man to take her away from him and marry him. What is that? There's not only the ninth commandment being broken, the sin of, a, uh, the sin of lying, but also he opens her up to Adultery, the sin of committing adultery. Oh, what a web of sin and evil we can so easily weave ourselves into, eh? Um, you read Abraham, you say, wow, that's us, isn't it? Simply by lying in this case. Abraham's marriage is at risk. But it's more than his marriage that's at risk. What's at risk? The promise seed to be born through them was threatened as well. Okay? This is a battle for Christmas. Who's attacking Christmas? Satan, through the Pharaoh. Abram, do you see this? Yes, Abram is jeopardizing God's promise by his sinful behavior. What happens? He loses the promise. He saved his own life, 
and he loses the promise. What is the promise? Sarai, <laughs> right? Because out of Sarai would come Jesus. He loses her. He loses the promise. At least that's what it seems like when Sarah, his wife, is taken away. At the border, checking everybody over, sure enough, the Egyptian officials noticed that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. Verses 14 and 15. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman. She was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Oh, there's no explanation. No details given. It's like you hear no negotiations, no dowry, no fight, at least from Abram's side. Whew, at least his life is protected. And Sarah whisked away passively in silence. You don't hear anything there, right? It just happens so quickly. The promise that God has been so graciously working out from the time that Adam and Eve fell into sin, Genesis 3, 15, working out throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, God, one day, just in one day, through Abram's foolish behavior. You see, Satan the serpent wishes to use Sarai to raise up his own wicked seed. That's what's going on here. Our very salvation from sin is in jeopardy, isn't it? Abram loses the promise in one day, so it seems. And Abram, ah, at least I'm treated well. At least I'm treated with respect. Right? He was treated well just as he had hoped. He got rich. He got wealth. I suppose there was some sort of exchange there for Sarai. What did he get? While Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake, he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male and female servants, female donkeys and camels, and probably a lot more besides. But do you think Abram was happy? You know, when you sell your soul for the riches of this world, you lose everything. He lost his wife. He lost the promise. He lost Jesus. The promise of Bethlehem was taken just like that. His lie had the effect not saying that Abram necessarily did this intentionally, no, but it had the effect of giving up God's promise of salvation for wealth. How many people, as Jesus says in Mark 5, 836, for what will it profit a man if he's going to gain the whole world and loses his own soul? What do riches mean, after all, if you lose Jesus? If you have no life in him anymore? Abram, what could he do now? I like what one commentator says. Nothing. Nothing. If he said, she's my wife, they would kill her. Or, sorry, they would kill him. What could Abram do? Nothing. He could do nothing. Abram was trapped by his own lie, trapped now in the land of Egypt. He could do nothing. How could he ever get back his wife? How could he ever have this promise and receive it? 
how would he ever be able to come back to the land which was promised him? What happens to God's promise now? Were Abram and Sarah now to be torn apart forever? Abram couldn't do anything. But who can do something when we're in our lowest estate? Who can do something? God. The Lord is the one who brings deliverance from all his troubles. Why? Because he will never forsake his promises. And this is really a, this is really, um, a testimony to God's faithfulness to which we can praise him for. If we're found walking in his ways and delighting in him, that's only because of the grace of God that we're able to do that. Look at God's faithfulness in verses 17 to 20. We don't know if Abram turned to the Lord or not at this time, in this time of loss of his wife. The Bible doesn't say, but we do know by deceitfully scheming, not trusting and obeying God's word never brings blessing. Scheming never brings blessing in itself. Never. If God's plan was left in man's hands to work it out, there would be no Bethlehem. Yet God will not allow Abram's wife or his promise to be taken from him. Why? For the sake of Bethlehem. For the sake of his promise. Notice here, salvation is by grace alone. God's faithfulness to his promises, that by God's grace alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing that Abraham could boast about in this. There's nothing we can boast about in our lives. Any blessing that we have, it's not, it's not us. It's the Lord at work. If there's to be any deliverance, any way out, the Lord himself must intervene. Abram chose death. You understand that, right? He's the one who chose death, but God chooses life. You see how his promise is stronger. His promise is stronger than death. His promise is stronger than the kings of the earth. His promise is stronger than Satan himself. You see, the first um, way that God shows his faithfulness is found in verse 17. What did the Lord do? He sent terrible plagues or diseases, you could say, on Pharaoh's house. Look at verse 17. For the Lord plagued Pharaoh and the house with great plagues. Why? Because the reason right there, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The implication here is that these diseases didn't even touch Sarah. Just like in the days of Egypt, when the plagues were sent upon the Egyptians, they didn't touch the people of Israel. So the Lord protected. He protects his promise. The Lord loves Sarai more than Abram does. He loves his promises more than Abram does. The Lord foils Satan's scheme and he turns it upside down. He turns it on his head and he is going to work it out for good. The Lord uses a man of the world to do what? To rebuke Abram for his sin. Somehow Pharaoh knew about it, that this was not right. It was revealed to him somehow that Sarai was not his sister, merely, but that Sarah was Abram's wife. How they heard about it, we don't know, perhaps in a dream. Somehow the Lord had revealed that to Pharaoh in the night. So what does Pharaoh do? He summons Abram. You come. You can imagine a king of this 
character, that disposition, saying to Abram, you come. I, he must be, he must be nervous. His heart must be sinking. He's to come to his palace. He's to come to his court and stand before him. And notice Abram's not going to stand before him as a prophet, but as one who is guilty. Pharaoh is going to confront him. Verse 18 and 19. What is this you have done to me? Says to Abram. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. And you can imagine Abram thinking, this is probably the end of my life. He's going to, he's going to kill me. Was it the end? Even the king's hearts are in the hands of the Lord, says Proverbs 21. Instead, Pharaoh says, here's your wife. Take her. Go. Does that remind you of Egyptians? Pharaoh saying to the Egyptians, take your possessions, leave, go. But it speaks of something far greater, a greater deliverance that will come in Jesus Christ, who will come deliver us from the powers of sin, the powers of death, and from Satan, and deliver us into a kingdom, into a kingdom far greater, one of peace, joy, and love. God's promise is stronger than Pharaoh. His promise is stronger than death. God shows his faithfulness further in verse 20. There's two ways he shows it. One by sending plagues, not on Abram, because of his promise. Not because Abram didn't deserve it, but because of his promise. He sends plagues on, Israel, on, on the Egyptians. But this one in verse 20 regards the inheritance, right? The land of the living. We see how Pharaoh sends soldiers to even escort them to the border because he doesn't want the promise harm. He might not want the promise harm, I shouldn't say that, but the Lord doesn't want the promise harm, and he uses Pharaoh to escort them to the border to show his fact that they would be safe. Verse 20, so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They sent him away and all that he had. You see here the hand of God's grace. Right? It's just simply by the grace of God alone. Why? It had nothing to do with Abraham. It had everything to do with Bethlehem. It had everything to do with God's promise. And God wanting to glory himself in the salvation of his people. Abraham needed salvation. That's why God saved him. Because of the promise to come. Abraham had nothing to boast about. He covers his head. I mean, he, he, yeah, he covers his head in shame. You know, the grace he accepts, that grace of God he accepts by faith. Notice, Abram, when he appears before Pharaoh, does he justify himself? He does not justify himself at all. Abram gives no defense of his sinful behavior. Oh, this is why I did this, because this and this and this and this. We easily do that. He offers no excuse. He does not justify his sinful behavior. His defense is only one. It's God. The God of his salvation. This is the Lord's doing. The Lord's doing in his life. And you think about it. What keeps us in the way of faith? It's not ourselves. It's the Lord's grace 
that enables to walk in his ways, to trust and obey. The Bible does not hesitate to show how the heroes of faith, here even Abram and Sarai, were in themselves sinful such as we are. But you notice that even Abram's obedience at the beginning of chapter 12, to forsake all and follow him, was not a paradigm of his virtue. It had nothing to do with his virtue. And it, it was really responsible obedience. That was really the work of God's grace manifesting itself in his life. It's God at work in his life. Nothing can stand in the way of God's promises. We can praise him for his faithfulness. No one can, can cancel the plan of God, not even the king of Egypt, not even the prince and princesses of our day. Nothing can stop the church from growing. Nothing can stop what this pastor was preaching and being arrested for. Nothing can stop the work of God from growing and proceeding and flourishing. Why? Because of his promise in Christ to raise up a seed, to raise up a church, a holy community from people from all nations and tribes. The one born in Bethlehem was born to save his people and to secure the inheritance of eternal life for his people through his own death for us on the cross. And so the call is, come to Christ. Come to him. And the only way what we can do is what Abram did is rest in his perfect obedience. We should never try to justify ourselves. We have no justification. Our only justification is in Christ the one that God was working for to bring into Bethlehem, born on that day. We rest in his perfect obedience for us in his life and his perfect obedience and his death for our sins on the cross. For the sake of his coming, the only begotten son, God protected the marriage of Abram and Sarai, for he was born through this line of promise. And who's this promise? Jesus. He's stronger than death. He's a resurrection and life. His name is Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And what more? We can say with the Psalms, he is my portion in the land of the living. Seed. Inheritance. Amen.